Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. Today's special episode is a recap of the first year of Planet Critical, and a thank you to this loyal band of listeners for your continued support, interest, and belief in the project. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics, and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, and ecological crises that we face today, and they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet, and it demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. Planet Critical began as Platform Enterprise, a podcast for people who are pissed off with capitalism. Platform Enterprise was something of a pet project and an excellent excuse to carve out time with inspiring people all around the world. I interviewed journalist Claire Rucastle-Brown about corruption, tax havens, and how the elite abuse the globalized financial system to thieve from the natural world and its people. We live in a global world um, and corruption affects us all. Um, and we, we, we're all endangered by it in the same way that we're all endangered by the consequences of stripping out the Borneo jungle in terms of climate change. I spoke with technologist Stuart Bauman about the age of Facebook and how to save Web 3.0 from capitalist interference. Web 2.0 in 2005, not coincidentally, I think that's when Facebook started. And when Facebook started, okay. that, that heralded the end of the organic internet. It was a return to something that looks closer to the global financial system that we think is so dystopian, except now instead of financial data, it's social data. In, in my analogy, social platforms are just banks because yeah, social okay. data is a kind of currency. Yeah. And, and it, it's telling that the two are convertible into each other. The fact that it, they're somewhat fungible tells you that functionally you can think of them as equivalent elements of like these models and all the problems you see with banks are you're going to see exactly the same problems manifest with social platforms where you have this asymmetrical accumulation of influence or money, right? It, just all of the injustice that flows out of that. Financial hacker Brett Scott joined me to explain how our financial systems work and the dangers of cryptocurrency. The barter theory of money is derived from the functions of money paradigm where they, the sort of economists have said there is an inherent need for something and that inherent need has brought forth something to come and fulfill it. Okay. Okay, so they start from the assumption that everybody needs to exchange. Hmm. So their, their de facto foundation is something like we always had to find some way to exchange things and it wasn't it so inconvenient. Therefore, the, the requirement for this like function has brought forth this thing to fulfill it. Whereas a lot of the kind of like anthropology type thinking of money will actually say, well, actually those things that you think are the functions of money are almost like secondary features that were induced by something else, particularly like political power and like monarchs and different types of people seeking power and systems, which as a secondary side effect creates a system of exchange and capitalism. Mm. For example, if you if you're in the US right now, there's this movement called Modern Monetary Theory, MMT. MMT is a branch of a historical tradition in money, which is called chartalism, which points out the political origins of monetary systems. And the fact that the primary sort of 
um, driver of monetary systems was states often trying to extract resources and then issuing out these tokens to do that. And those tokens subsequently become used for a secondary purpose of facilitating exchange among the people who happen to end up being forced to use them. I spent a wonderful few hours speaking with artist Linda Havenstein about creating art in a capitalist regime and the effects of the art market on creativity. There's certain levels of art market and of art institutions and how they work. Like the big ones that are making the headlines, mostly going along with collectors who just have, in my opinion, too much money. Mm. There's also a lot of works that are just... You can read it in a kind of like anti-capitalist way and that that can be owned again by people who have gained their wealth and all of the means to buy these artworks in a way to make some kind of absolution, you know, like, oh, I understand that the system is fucked. And then I buy this work and I use the work in a way that you can use it to don't pay taxes and all of that stuff. And then there's, of course, also an art market that caters more to like small-time collectors, people who just really like work and want to have it and don't turn around and flip it on auction just to make more money out of it. So there's like these different tiers to it, but there's of course like the big shiny figures that everyone looks to mm -hmm. in the art world that are making the most money, the big collectors that are having the most money and like paying most of the money for most expensive works. To position yourself within that is, is a little bit difficult, like because you have to kind of like pretend that you're not seeing that or that you're not part of the system, which of course you are. But at the same time, not being vocal about it just feels wrong. Hmm. You know, if art is a way to investigate the world and a way to express your view onto the world and how you how you deal with it, then just not being vocal about this very, very big part of what we are seeing, all of the destruction that we're seeing, the things that are discussed about, is just not an option, I think. Every billionaire is a system failure, and I totally subscribe to that. I also interviewed activist Reverend Billy about protesting extinction. They don't want to arrest us in New York because it represents a possible news article. We've got these wonderful singers. It's all original music. <laughs> Earthalooia! We're making the rafters shake, and they, they enjoy it. Sometimes there'll be a John Wayne figure who's so angry, but we try to keep smiling, and that's hard sometimes, but you, you just want to keep joking and smiling. We're bringing humor and music to the sixth extinction, mm. and that's why when XR happened, we identified with it so strongly because we always felt that the stern, judgmental thing wasn't working. Mm. And we always felt that the guilt-inducing graphics of the big NGOs like the Sierra Club, we saw that that was not effective. We saw that they were raising a lot of money, though. <laughs> $80 and we'll send you a panda tote bag. Yeah. Mm, super Man, effective. They, they are so, so rich. Wow. 
And I spoke with Professor James Dyke about how net zero policies will not save our world from the ravages of the climate crisis. Let's say we decarbonize at 1% or 2%, which would be pretty amazing, actually, even if we were able to do it. That's still not going to keep us to within two degrees, mm-hmm. let alone 1.5. So what we need to see is quite radical change. And academics are producing the research which shows that. So one of the things that I got particularly animated about is that we generate these scenarios, net zero scenarios that would limit warming to 1.5, which are involving every unrealistic amounts of carbon removal, fantastical notions of futuristic machines that are going to miraculously remove all this carbon. But we put our academic imprint on it. It goes in reputable journals. It gets reported by the IPC. Politicians can then use it and present it as some way that we're going to keep um, humanity safe. And even the people involved in producing the research don't believe it. Even the people involved in these very complicated integrated assessment models that produce scenarios 1.5 don't think we're going to do it. Of course, we're not going to do that. We're heading towards three, right? So there's this increasing disconnect between what academics are doing as part of their day job and the potentially really important role they've got to be much, much more vocal and say, for example, you can't use that scenario. It's not just unrealistic, it's dangerous, for example. Then I interviewed Steve Keane, the economist who steered Australia through the 2008 financial crash on the economics of climate change. So the framework they have is that capitalism, the the production involves substitutability. So their model of production is simply an anagram of the model of consumption. Okay? Mm. And they say consumers get utility by consuming goods, and the more of an individual good you consume, the less utility you get. So one banana gives you a lot of utility, two bananas, the second banana less utility, and so on. That's the way they explain consumption. And they use exactly the same logic for production. So they argue there's substitutability. If you don't eat bananas, you can eat a strawberry, you know, that sort of thing. No problem. They apply to production. They can't. If you have a production process that needs silver, and you can't put copper in there. So the substitutability that they focus upon is a general hand-waving thing as well. It's not that they go and take a look at what the physical resources are. So with that framework, the, the idea that substitutability and efficiency and markets moving rapidly and production moving along what they call a production possibility frontier, equally, the, their model of production has you inputting labour and capital and getting output. No energy and no raw materials. And that's the vast majority of economic models today don't include those raw materials. I was so fascinated by his capacity to identify how global systems interlock and impact each other, in particular how economic theory is hobbling the fight against climate change, that I immediately decided to change the podcast's focus. A few weeks later, the show relaunched as Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis, examining our energy, economic and ecological crises. The response from you listeners and guests alike has been incredible, and I am so grateful for it. Planet Critical is now a resource of interviews with top minds from all over the globe who are committed to figuring out how to navigate these crises. I spoke with Professor Simon Michaud about the climate crash and the world's depleting mineral resources. My question to you is, if we are going to phase out fossil fuels, the only plan we've got at the moment is electric vehicles, batteries, solar panels and wind turbines. And they will require an unprecedented amount of metals. And all metal reserves around the world are not enough. And we're getting to the point where global, the global ecosystem for, say, globalisation and free trade is becoming a problem. 
the China-US trade war, for example, is now becoming a problem. Yeah, so you don't want to have to depend on countries that are on the other side of the world in order to get your resources to make the things that you need. Absolutely correct. What will probably need to happen is a European mining frontier will be opened, but the mining will happen very differently to how it happens now, and the people on the ground will be part of the process to actually make sure that they don't get the environmental devastation because it won't be about money anymore. There'll be national assets, like oil is managed by the Saudi Arabians, it'll be that sort of thing. But if we don't do that, then we don't get the minerals and we don't get the metals. And if we don't get the metals, then the industrial ecosystem either shuts down or we become completely dependent on the Chinese system in particular at a time when the geopolitics of that are becoming very clear that it's, it's not going to be very nice for much longer. Academic Blair Fix joined me to discuss the fallacy of GDP and how to build a grassroots economics. You talk about how you've established that GDP is a flawed metric. Oh, well, there's so many reasons. The most well-known is that, number one, GDP only adds things. So if there's a hurricane and it destroys the coastline, then we have to rebuild everything. All of that is just money spent and it gets added to GDP. So everything looks good. There's no negative spending in GDP. It's always positive. They assume that everything, all money spent on new products is good for the economy. Things like making guns or any number of things that are probably bad that we don't want to spend a lot of money on. They just all get added to GDP. It's just not a good metric for human well-being. There's also the fact that it doesn't include unpaid work, any kind of household activity that is pretty essential to life, like raising children and socializing them. None of that gets counted. And then kind of the big picture argument is GDP assumes that producing more stuff is good for mm. people, but it's suicidal in the long run. You can't pump out more and more stuff, use more and more resources forever. That's impossible. And there's no evidence that it's actually good for people. So I'm a big fan of degrowth. And then focus on improving human well-being. And, and really, you don't need GDP for any of that. So I think we should just throw it in the garbage. Forget about it. Dr. Kerry King revealed the myth of efficiency and why we're using more energy every year. Useful work is essentially mechanical drive or muscle work. If, if you cause something to physical move, you've done work. Making a new material, for example, or making a power plant is physically moving mass and refining iron ore into iron, say, and then structuring it into a steel beam and a building. And then there's work, there's like chemical work to make chemicals and plastics. And electricity is often considered a pure form of work in a thermodynamic sense. So the point of all this is people trying to add up all the work done by the economy, which means you've taken into account efficiency to do step one, efficiency of step three, efficiency of step four. When you add up all the work for several countries that have been done, including the United States, the quote unquote useful work done in the economy increases at seemingly almost an exact one-to-one -one ratio with gross domestic product. And so the implication there is that the economy is just trying to do more work like maximum power. It's just trying to do more work. And that's just make stuff and then operate stuff. And GDP is a proxy measure for that. So the implication is you can add up all these efficiencies. They could come up with an aggregate efficiency for the whole economy. But these aggregate efficiencies are something like 10 to 15%.
Papua New Guinean politician Gary Jufa gave incredible insight into the war on nature and how illegal logging is devastating one of the world's largest rainforests. I said, look, let me go to Parliament and let me represent you in there and let's, let's see what we can do. And if it doesn't work, then I'll come and join you and we'll do exactly what we intended to do in the first place. And so that's what we're doing. And I've been fighting ever since against these illegal logging cartels and we've removed most of them. There's only two left that we are now in court with. And it's very frustrating because we are forced to take these actions at that level, take it to court because the government systems have been so compromised and so perverted and corrupted that they work against me and against what we're trying to do which is right and by our people and by the environment. And, and that's the same case in many parts of the developing nation landscape. If you go to a developing nation, you'll find that government machineries have been hired. They've become mm. mercenaries themselves and they are paid for by giant cartels, uh, companies, transnational organizations who utilize these government services for their own benefit. And it is usually to the detriment of the interests of the people of that nation and the future of that nation. Professor Ugo Bardi discussed how evolution is a process of collaboration and why we must infuse global systems with human values. You tell people stop burning fossil fuels, but honestly, it is very difficult for people doing that because our life my life, your life, everybody, we depend on fossil fuels. We cannot stop unless we kill a few billion people, which uh, is not exactly what we want to do. I hope you have no possibility other than the indirect, that is replace fossil fuels with something else, keeping people alive in the transition, Mm. which is not so easy. But it is possible. I'll tell you that with some colleagues, we made a study on this. Suppose you're a peasant, medieval peasant, you work in the fields, you have 12 kids, but you have this problem. Every year you have a harvest. Mm-hmm. Out of the harvest, you have to keep a sufficient amount of seed that you can use to sow the fields next year. But if you listen to our economists, they say, well, there's not a problem. The market will provide the seed that you need because there is a demand and the market will provide a supply. This is the problem we have with fossil fuels. We have to keep some of these fossil fuels in order to seed the renewable energy that we can use to replace fossil fuels. Our calculations show that we should invest in renewables about 10 to 20 times more than what we are investing now. Academic Nate Higgins came on the show to reveal the big picture of the energy, economic and ecological crises and how we can plot a course to navigate this certain upheaval they will cause. We are a social species that has based our culture on extraction, mining, and consumption of ancient sunlight, which means that our economy, because of the benefits from fossil carbon, is over a thousand times bigger than it was 500 years ago, measured by number of people times average consumption. We, just like organisms and ecosystems in nature, have a metabolism as a global culture. 
we basically have ecological overshoot as a species who's accessed this bolus of fossil carbon. And there are two giant categories of environmental impact. One is strictly from the size and scale of our metabolism. And that would be climate change, ocean acidification, anything to do with accumulating of waste products in, in the, the atmosphere, the biosphere. The other is all the things that we do with the energy, like elephant ivory and overfishing the oceans and chopping down forests to build shopping centers. Those things aren't directly a product of our metabolism. Those are things that our culture chooses or at least accepts to do. Theoretical physicist Anastasia Makarieva explained how the world's forests control our water systems and why saving these forests could be the key to saving the world. Life is organized in such a manner as to stabilize its environment. Let us try to test this proposition. Carbon is the main component of all life. So imagine that we would make such a global experiment. Let us disturb the carbon uh, concentration globally and see, will the biota react? If it does regulate the environment, it should try to stabilize this disturbance to eliminate it, right? If it doesn't react, so uh, we won't see any response. And actually, with this fossil fuel burning, we have this global experiment. We are testing the ability of the biota to respond to the perturbation. And it does respond. We have just disturbed so much that it is not already able to completely negate our pollution. But if we disturbed it less than we did, it could totally uh, cope with it. I want to tell you, it is a very complex question in theoretical biology and ecology because this response couldn't be predicted. And people were forced to accept that the biota reacts in this manner only when they calculated and measured it. Because the conventional paradigm, biota adapts and all that, didn't predict it. And Joshua Farley lambasted mainstream economics for not only facilitating the climate crisis, but also for being completely devoid of the common sense our species has developed over millennia. Except for solar energy, we burn energy, we generate waste, whether it's fossil fuels or nuclear waste. So first of all, when you burn energy, you know, you physically convert it into a more useful form of energy, but also waste outflows. And there's no way to make that circular. There are these eco-modernists who claim that we could have nuclear power plants that would suck carbon dioxide back out of the air and turn it into fossil fuels again, which we would then burn. Which, of course, though the laws of thermodynamics say when you convert one form of energy to another, you lose energy in the process. Right. So it would take much, much more energy to convert carbon dioxide back into energy. But... You know, it's, it's very bizarre. And, and people who are doing this know that. They understand the laws of thermodynamics, but somehow they still claim we could have this complete circular economy where we literally suck carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. But why you would spend more money to do that than you got from burning the fossil fuel in the first place right. is hard to fathom. I feel so honored that my wee podcast has become an aggregate for all of this fascinating research. 
And I hope that listening to these interviews provides the planet's critical community with a better understanding of the problems we face and the nature of the necessary solutions. I have the feeling we're only just getting started though. And it really wouldn't be possible without the support of you all and without the willingness of my fantastic guest to spend a few hours speaking with merely an enthusiastic layman. Here's what to expect in January. I interviewed Alice Friedemann about the politics of peak oil and why the future can't depend on renewables. Jason Bradford joined me to explain why he left academia to begin a community farm. And Tim Garrett spoke with incredible passion about astrophysics and what snowflakes can teach us about how our economy works. Studying snowflakes is important. If you want to predict even where a hurricane is going to land, just the tiniest adjustment to snowflakes affects where the prediction is of where a hurricane will land. Or how are droughts going to materialize in the future as climate warms? Again, it depends on how snowflakes form and fall. And so I, I just thought this was the perfect topic because it's, it's a fundamental physics problem. Snowflakes are actually the basis for my model and understanding of how human systems work. This has been the guiding principle behind how I approach problems, which is a fundamental belief that everything is deep down the same. The universe is not complicated. It is simple. And if I can understand one thing that is dynamic, evolves, goes through phases of growth and collapse, then I understand the principles of how other things work, including human systems. Mm-hmm. And that's an idea that's repugnant to many people, but it's one that I'm finding works. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you know, it does simplify how we think about things in, I think, some really quite revealing, important ways. Sometimes I'll look at the economic system and see how it evolves and goes through its contortions and say, ah, wow, gee, that helps me understand how clouds go through their evolutionary cycles or snowflakes. Mm-hmm. We're all look at snowflakes and then look at the economy. And it's all, for me, helpful to think about these problems from multifacets. I love learning about how the world works. I'm sure that's come across. And I really love having Planet Critical as an excuse to pick the brains of my fascinating guests. Beyond that, though, I am so grateful for the feedback and support I get every week from you all. Hearing that you're equally intrigued by these interviews honestly makes my week, and I still can't get over the exponential interest in Planet Critical. I don't know where or how you're coming across the podcast because I'm really terrible at marketing it, but I am truly thrilled you found it. Thank you for joining me every week for these impactful and important conversations. To those of you who have chosen to support Planet Critical with a paid subscription, Wow. (laughs) I'm just chuffed you find such value in my work. Your support really does enable me to continue investing my time into producing this show, which really is the highlight of my week. My goal for the podcast is simple, to keep investing more and more time into Planet Critical to make it one of the best resources out there for a planet in crisis. If you want to help me make this happen, please do visit planetcritical.com, subscribe, and if you have the means, choose a paid subscription. I want this podcast to continue being a home for critical thinking and daring dreaming. And I think we need both when staring down the barrel of the next decade. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. I hope you are as excited as I am to see where we go. It may not all be good news, but uh, hey, 
at least we're informed. <laughs> Thank you and see you next week.